how to handle closers in 2024, how to handle stolen bases in 2024, and our take on the first round of 2024 drafts. It's our live episode of the Beat the Shift podcast with guests Tristan Cockroft of ESPN and Derek Hardy of Roto-Grinders. That's all coming up next on Beat the Shift. And welcome, everyone, to the Beat the Shift podcast live edition from Mesa, Arizona at First Pitch. Welcome. My name is Ariel Cohen, and with me here, as always, Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great today. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. We've got two special guests, ESPN, Tristan Cockroft. And we've got Roto-Grinders, Derek Hardy. We have a great show for you today, and uh, so we, as you know, we get right into it. So uh, let's just start off with a thought question for uh, the panel here. Which is more important in the context of things when playing fantasy baseball? Is it succeeding at your initial draft, or is it the in-season playing? So we're talking about making pickups and waiver wire and everything and setting lineups. Uh, obviously, both are important. But which do you think is more important? Let's start with you, Derek. I think it has to be the draft. I mean, in-season managing is really important. You can make up for some of your shortcomings in the draft. But if you don't have a good draft, you're, you're dead. All right, Tristan? I'd agree with that. Uh, there, isn't, there really isn't one answer to this question because the shallower the league, the more likely you can massage it during the year. So we've right. got to take that into account. But for the most part, yes. I mean, I could give you the, the great example of Somebody here might not have won Towers, of course, and would finish seventh like me if he had let me have Ronald Acuna Jr. for $42. But no, I mean, it's the draft. And even in deeper leagues like Towers, I mean, there's not as much to pick up in season, but that means if you're able to hit on a couple of big pickups, it's going to help a lot. Like in Towers this year, which Tristan's alluding to, I won. Thank you, thank you. Um, I picked up Bryce Elder. I picked up... uh, David Peterson, I picked up Miguel Rojas, I picked up Nolan Jones, like a bunch of guys. Some of them are kind of bit players, but like in a deep NL only league like that, uh, they wind up having a lot of value and being able to find those type of pieces in season is important, but it's not enough on its own. Yeah, without a doubt. He had a couple moves that made a big difference here. You wouldn't have even finished seventh without Acuna. You still probably win the league. It's just you ran away with the whole thing. Uh, If you have that advantage coming out of the draft, you can make a lot of your moves tailored based on having had a successful draft. And if you're a person who didn't do so well at the draft, you have to take some bigger chances, and then that can really blow up in your face. Yeah. And I happen to agree with both of you. The draft, I think, is more important. Um, but the big part of the draft is not only having a good draft, but when you prep for the draft, you actually get to know all the players. And knowing the players will help you in fab later in the season, so you have a, a good basis for the fab later on. So I, I will say three things. Uh, one, the deeper the league, the more important the draft is. As you go shallower and shallower and the replacement level is higher, the draft becomes less important because you can fill in the gaps later. I will say that the more waiver periods, the more lineup periods there are, like if you're setting twice a week or daily, the more important in-season is, right? If you're subject to constantly monitoring, it definitely is. Uh, And the third thing I'll say is, it is heading over the years go now, 
more towards the in-season being important. Do, do you agree with that, that in recent years it's more important than it has been before? There, just to jump in on that, there are a lot more games that give you the flexibility. I can tell you just from the ESPN standpoint is we've always been daily leagues, but we've cut down the lineups, and that puts an even greater emphasis on – making moves during the season there are opportunities out there and you are changing your lineups frequently and the nfbc with the two two lineup uh setting the lineup twice during the week monday friday yes that gives you more advantages as well i mean we've, we've played standard roto for years where it was weekly now having two opportunities yes it places more of an imp- uh, emphasis on the uh, in season if you're playing in a league that has daily transactions and unlimited transactions like in-season matters a lot in that. You can churn over very quickly, just play matchups with, you know, you can just reserve a couple of your, your roster spots, and that's all that's all you do with them, especially if you're in, like, an auction like that. You can just completely punt a couple of spots and just churn them throughout the season, especially if it's a little shallower, you know, stream pitchers or stream platoon guys or whatever it may be. In, in our Relievers. league, did we really have even the same teams at the end of the year that we began the season with? We probably turned over 50% of our rosters in the standard mix daily. Yeah. So so if that's true, that you know, you're able to churn and gain a lot of value by churning, would you say that it is more important than ever in the early rounds to bank lower risky players, whatever we call risky, or players that are going to stick around all year and provide the large base of stats. Like, don't go for guys who have, you know, some kind of chance, an injury player, uh, a newer player. Uh, You want to cut down a risk because you're churning all this. You want to make sure that you at least have the rocks no matter what. Would you agree with that? We we definitely, I think, come from separate schools of thought on on this because – I don't think that we're actually able to assess risk as well as we think we can. Like, what makes a risky guy? We may come into the season and think someone's risky, but we don't really know. Like, just because they've been volatile in the past doesn't mean there's been no studies to show, okay, that means they're going to be volatile in the future. We're not as good at predicting injuries as we think we are. Oh, hold on a second. A show of hands here. Who would classify Byron Buxton as, as risky? <laughs> who, doesn't? Is, who doesn't? Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? There's nobody who doesn't. So there, we can, in a, in a way, know we can identify there, who a risky person. You is. are well. You can identify who a risky person has been, but not who's going to be going forward. Byron Buxton. Okay, sure. If you'd done it every single year, you'd you'd have been right. But you know for a fact, just based on the way distributions and statistics work, there's always going to be that guy at the tail end. That's just going to get unlucky every year and unlucky every year and unlucky every year and unlucky. So saying after the fact, oh, well, we know Byron Buxton is, is, a, is a super risky guy. Like, no, he might just be that guy at the tail end that just you know he's going to exist. It's going to be one guy just because we can point to him now and say it's Byron Buxton doesn't mean that going forward he's going to be. And I, I have no stance whatsoever on Byron Buxton. I'm just saying, like, it's easy to cherry pick examples after the fact. All right, and, and question, who would classify Carlos Correa as uh, a risky or oft-injured person? <laughs> yeah, I was listening to Eno uh, the other day on Rates Barrels, and he was saying, uh, you know, Carlos Correa, over the last three seasons, he's accumulated 1,810 plate appearances. So whatever his woes of the past were, were suddenly healed. Now, Carlos Correa, his... Actual production level has gone, <laughs> yeah. but I wouldn't classify him as risky anymore. I think you know what you're getting more. Yeah. Actually, two, two of the best examples I can think of of they were risky, and now they're not. Evan Longoria. <laughs> the guy missed a ton of time and then all of a sudden played, what, three straight years of 162 games. Ian Kinsler was another one who fell into this. Uh, you, you can't nail 
too many players down to this. You're talking a, a small handful, Buxton, Giancarlo Stanton, Hyunjin Ryu, and now I have to think about the rest of the list. And now let me throw some numbers out there for you about the injuries. 383 pitchers went on the IL this year. 383, 295 hitters went on the IL. So more pitchers than hitters, which is obviously what we think. Last year, 2022, 414 pitchers and 314 hitters. Usually when it comes down to a hitter pitcher breakdown of who goes in the IL, for the last three years, this includes 2021, 56% of players who go on the IL are pitchers. So if you want to get less risky players, maybe it's better to get more risky hitters because they have less of a chance of going on the IL. What do you think about that? So Ruvain is on team draft Byron Buxton is what I'm hearing. I drafted him <laughs> one year and I never will do it again. <laughs> just one time. Really? Just once. Just once. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, now Shohei Otani next year is not going to pitch. Do we think that he's more risky to underperform? It's a very hard question to answer, right? Because we don't have that many. No. No? No, no. I don't think it's a hard question to answer at all. I think we're going to have the answer during spring training. Right. I think we're going to know exactly what we're going to get from Shohei Otani. Is he fine to hit or is he not fine to hit? I think right. it's going to be one or the other, and we'll be able to make a, a decision. Based and so on that. he might be a player that will, his ADP might move very drastically in spring training. Oh, he looks good. He can hit. Oh, he looks like a bust, right? You might see mm -hmm. a lot of fluctuations. He's, he's, I mean, it's five drafts of the NFBC ADP. He's 17th right now overall. Right. I have him in the top 10 because I, I'm going to, at least this far out, assume he should be fine as a hitter. He's done that before. All right, and before we go on further, it's time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. So we're talking about consistency, and one of the most consistent players in fantasy the last couple of years was Freddie Freeman. Freddie Freeman, last year, 331 average, 29 homers, 102 RBIs, and a career-high 23 stolen bases. So this is for the panel, and this is for the audience as well. Including Freddie Freeman, including Freddie Freeman, there were 13 players last year that had 25 homers and 20 stolen bases. Who were the other 12? Acuna. Acuna's on the list. <laughs> Good answer. Great. Good answer. Julio? Julio, yes. Corbin Carroll, yes. Bobby Witt. Bobby Witt, yes. You had Witt first, I know. Marcus Simeon did not make it. Jose Ramirez didn't make it? Jose Ramirez missed, I think, by one home run. Lindor. Lindor, Lindor made Lindor 30, 30. 30. Yes. Josh Lowe. Josh Lowe did not make the list. Mm, did not hit enough home runs. Mookie Betts. Did anyone say, did anyone say Trey Turner? Trey Turner. Trey Turner hit 26 home runs. Nope, but Tatis is on the list as well. Um, some guys that uh, you mentioned, Kyle Tucker, Cody Bellinger. Cody Ballinger did it, and a guy who everyone got a lot of profit on this year, Lane Thomas. People forget about him, and he won a lot of leagues. So the question is, talking about consistency, of all these guys, who do you consider consistent? Carroll only did it once, I mean, and he had a shoulder injury during the course of the season. Tatis has a history of injuries. Luis Roberts is on the list, which I didn't mention also. He has a history of injuries. Even Acuna is on the injury, can be injured. So who do you consider consistent? Win. He's only done it twice, though. Two for two. And is he consistent? He did not start the year doing well in the batting ratio categories, and then he turned it up late in the year. So is that consistent? I mean, we'll, we'll dive into this with a consistency question. What is consistency exactly? All right, well, Freddie Freeman, let's take a look at his history. In terms of accumulated roto dollars from 2018, 30, 33, 42, 30, 39, 
44. Every number above 30 is an average of 36. That's the first-round player. If you guys remember, in this very room last year, I think I made the case, and I said, Freddie Freeman should be drafted as a top-five player. You guys remember that? Yeah. Um, well, and my argument was not that he has the upside of Acuna. My argument was he has shown consistency. You need, in the first round, to bank value. There is nobody more consistent than him, so he should get a bump in terms of his draft slot because of the consistency. And so I guess my question to the panel here is, how do you or should you put in that kind of consistency bump into your, your, into your valuation? Now, you can't really just add playing time and projections, right? And by the way, all the, all the people we've mentioned so far, Byron Buxton and, and whoever, the issue with him in terms of risk was we don't know how to project playing time, right? If you could tell me Byron Buxton is going to get 300 and something at bats for sure, well, we would know what his value is, and that's the end. But we don't know. The playing time's uncertain. That's what makes him more risky. But now we're talking about the opposite. We're talking about consistency and what kind of value do you put a Mookie Betts who has done this, who has been somewhere around the first two rounds, a Trey Turner, shouldn't we be adding some kind of value that isn't exactly in the projections with projected at-bats? It's a hard question because, again— We only ask hard questions here. <laughs> again, like, what even is consistency? Is it real? Is it predictable? Or is it just a myth? And I— I think to a large extent, I probably lean towards the second one. A guy's consistent until he's not. Like we were, would have said the same thing about Mike Trout, what, two or three years ago? Mike Trout's so consistent, he does this every year, every year, and then he's not. And like where, it's like a hot streak. We know that they exist, but they don't predict the continuance of the hot streak the next day. And I don't know if this is the same thing. Also, my question would be, is consistency year over year, or is it week over week? Or is it day over day? And I think that there's a different answer to each of those. I think it's extremely difficult for us to nail the guys who are consistent year over year because there's so much fluctuation. Freddie Freeman was number two on our player radar last year. Nobody is projecting him to be the number two player. Nobody. Why? Because of the stolen bases. No one's going to project him to repeat those stolen bases. And those do make a difference. If he has eight steals, it's different than if he has 21 steals. That's going to have a bearing on this. Uh, the day-to-day -day thing? By the way, you want to know who the day-to-day -day most consistent players are? It's like last year I ran a couple. Contact guys, Arias, and guys like that probably. Dansby Swanson, Paul Goldschmidt. Okay, good player. Jamer Candelario. Jamer Candelario. Reed Detmers is one of them. I mean, they're not the exciting first-round kind of guys. So just be careful not to go too heavily in the direction of consistent guys. I'm with you on Freeman. Just kind of a freak of nature. But I mean, especially Candelario. Who who would consider Heimer Condelario, a consistent player. Any, not a single person in this room is putting their hand up. Like, right. okay, maybe he was this year, but is that predictive of what he's going to be next year? And that's what I don't think we he's, have a good answer he's for. He's consistently, eh. And then, and, then, and then consistency, we want to talk about games being played. 95% of games is 154 games. Last year, 37 players played 154 games or more. I mean, Marcus Simeon played all of them. He played 179 games, something like that. So, I mean, do you want to count that? Because you know they're going to play every day. You're going to get their stats. Do you want those stats on your roster? Do you want a guy who, like a Carl Schwarber who can play 150-something games, have a horrible batting average, and hit you 45 home runs? Do you want that on your roster? It's consistent, but is that the consistency you want? 
Yeah, it's a tough question to answer. So, you know, the ATC projections tries to answer a part of that with the uh, the volatility metrics to at least show what pro what players' projections are consistent for. And it's been proven that the more projections are consistent, the more likely they are to actually go above what their aggregated value is. Um, but, you know, uh, it's a tough thing for everyone. Uh, talking about youngsters, okay? Um, would you would you say that being a first year player, we know that Corbin Carroll was absolutely amazing, but it's only been one year as we pointed out. Does that ding now? Does that I'll actually ask you first, Derek? Does that ding the how much does that ding projections? Being that it's a first year, because you're still tracking miners' data, you're still having some volatility. Once you get you know three years of data, then you've got a really solid uh, output. But will Corbin Carroll be dinged in projections because he's just new? Not, not necessarily. I mean, there's nothing in, at least in the bat, that's, you know, this flag that says, okay, he's only been in the majors for a year, so you have to reduce his projection by X amount. Um, it winds up happening a lot of times with younger players because of how hard they are to predict, how many of them bust. And so when you translate minor league numbers to major league equivalencies, they're never as impressive as prospect guys want them to be because so many of them bust. I mean, you can name a ton of number one prospects that over the years have just busted or struggled their first year or whatever. I mean, yeah, Dansby Swanson was one, and for years he was pretty mediocre. Yoan uh, Mankata was one. Um, Byron Buxton for years, you know, was kind of like did nothing. There's so many of these guys that uh, who's the the guy for Seattle? Jared Kalanick. Everyone loved Jared Kalanick and Christian. No, not Christian. We don't. Uh, we don't like who, him on this podcast. Jordan Walker. Jordan Walker. Jordan who's Walker. the Cardinals? Jordan. Walker. Yeah. yeah, the one that everyone was crazy about this year. Like, there's so many of these guys that just don't do anything. Um, that when you're actually projecting the mean scenario for a prospect or a young guy, it's going to be lower than people think. Once they have a year in the majors, like Corbin Carroll, especially an elite year, I think projections are going to like him. But he is still going to be dragged down a little bit by the fact that a big part of his sample is still made up by minor league data that was actually not that good. Yeah, that's, I'm in agreement on that. It's the MLE is probably going to pull him down. So I would weight what he did last year a little bit more heavily. He's also an unusual example. We're picking, sure, we're sure. picking a player who was really great, the number one prospect, delivered. Julio Rodriguez also did this and was pretty darn good in the follow-up. So I, I think he's the one <laughs> that we don't worry about too much. You want to dig into deeper prospects? Sure. The next guy that came to mind to me was Dan Tanner Bybee. Tanner Bybee's the kind of guy who we're going to dock a little bit in projections because that will be hard to repeat. So if we want to talk about that field of the, the secondary and third tier rookies from the season, yeah, maybe we temper a bit, a bit there. But it's the secondary and third and tertiary levels that you have to be concerned about. Dalton Varsho, great rookie year. Eh, second year, his batting average killed you. Jeremy Pena, he came in all bolt up. When he came into spring training, he looked like Coke Hogan. It was crazy. And what did he do? He was, you know, where you're drafting him, he was a disappointment. So for every top guy who can repeat it, like a Bobby Witt, you have lower guys who will not be able to repeat it the sophomore year, and that's the sophomore slump, and I think the sophomore slump is real. Who, who here in drafts in 2024, if you had to draft today, who would you take first, Corbin Carroll or Freddie Freeman? Raise your hand for Corbin Carroll. Roto League, of course. Ro raise your hand for Freeman. It's about 50-50 here. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting scenario. Uh, wanted to ask you, Derek, um, because we do have a lot of prospects playing the playoffs this year. Carroll, Josh Young, Brandon Fott, right? Uh, how does their performance in the playoffs affect what you do in terms of projection, projecting them? And should, should we be taking postseason into account? 
So right now the bat and the bat axe do not account for postseason performance. Um, it's partially just because of laziness. It's also <laughs> partially Thanks because for being honest. <laughs> partially because it is a different environment than the regular season. And I'm not necessarily talking about like, oh, it's more pressure or whatever, but uh, the way the game is played is a little bit different in the postseason. Like a guy like Brandon Fott, for example, okay, he did great in the postseason. But he was also only throwing like 50 or 60 pitches per game. So was he throwing harder, better? Is that actually representative of how he's going to throw in the regular season next year? Um, it might not be. You know, he might have been kind of being treated as, as you know, like a, a semi-reliever type of thing where he could go harder um, and then he's going to fall back. You know, his stuff is going to be a little bit worse next year. So you have to adjust for all that kind of stuff if you're going to do the postseason. Obviously, the level of competition is going to be a lot higher in the postseason for, for hitters or for pitchers. So unless you're making those adjustments, I don't think you should be using postseason stuff. Yeah, you have counteracting agents here because they are playing against a higher level of, of player, right, because they're playing the playoff teams. But it is a different game, right? The, the way that pitchers are used in the playoffs are differently than they're used in the regular season because you're playing game by game, not have to deal with a 162-game season. Um, so you do have that counteracting balance there. Um, I don't know. Thoughts, Tristan, on uh, how we should factor in? And I will say that some people have the thought that, well, if a player doesn't – if a prospect or a young player doesn't do well in playoffs, just leave it alone. But if they have a great – they have a great postseason – then bump them up. And does that make any sense to yeah, you? Yeah, I'll, I'll second Derek's point about the difference in competition. The first thing that comes to mind there is 2020 when we had everybody playing within their same divisions, if you didn't adjust for that. I think we even talked about that here yeah. last year. If you don't make that adjustment, then you're not doing the projections correctly. Kind of the same situation with the playoffs. As far as players who stand out during the postseason, I'm usually the one fading them just because there's way too much excitement. Everybody saw them. Everybody's excited about them. There's going to be too many bidders in the room in any of my auctions on them. Uh, I'll show my age by saying I, I still remember the Sterling Hitchcock great postseason, and everybody wanted him in my drafts, and I wanted no part at all. So in general, I'll lean that direction. There are exceptions, of course. If this In general, if you ever find me rostering a player that is popular, that everyone wants to roster, put me out to pasture. Because <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's, that's Randy Rosarino a couple of years ago. He had a uh -huh. great postseason, and everyone drafted him higher than where he was supposed to go. And you mentioned Brandon Fatt. Um, he only threw, I think, close to 110 or 112 innings this year, including playoffs. Last year, he threw 165 total, which means that he didn't even hit the, the, picks, the level of, of innings that he hit last year, so he was still fresh when compared to other pitchers. So that's why he may have been performing better, just because he was able to. Yeah, I think the, uh, the bigger question not is how do you project them. The bigger question is how will the market respond? And, of course, with recency bias, oh, look at what happened in the postseason. It's fresh in your memory. It's going to bump up players very possibly higher than what they're worth. Carol's a different animal, obviously. But. Are you saying that the market – are you saying that generally people <laughs> overreact – to, well, to outliers and things that happened talk, most recently. Talk about overreacting. Christian Walker, horrible, horrible last couple of weeks. Does he does he change next year in the draft? You do not draft him where he's supposed to go because of all those home runs that he hits. I mean, you, you can't. He, he's still the same guy. He just was at a slump. Sometimes it's just a slump. Yeah. I want to talk about uh, stolen bases. Um, stolen bases, the landscape changed quite a bit last year. We all know stolen bases are up. Blah 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 blah. Um, the question is, how do we react to that as fantasy baseball players? 
Now, I, I'm a Z-score guy. When I evaluate players, I'm running my formulas, and you know we're talking about standard deviation and average of the active player regime, blah, 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 blah. The standard deviation uh, in the Z-scores has gone up from like, like an 8 standard deviation for the last two years up to 12. So stolen bases are devalued in that sense. Um, in 2021... If you had 11 stolen bases, that was about a, a plus half of a Z-score. It jumped to 17 this year, meaning the equivalent value in stolen bases from 2021 of 11 is 17. That's a 55% jump. So you would have to steal 55% more bases in some respects just to get the same level of value from your stolen bases. To me, that totally devalues stolen bases. Not only that, there are so many more stolen bases available. Like, for example, um, players who stole at least 20 stolen bases, there were 24 in 2022. That jumped to 51 in 2023. You don't have to reach all the way up top and say, I got to get stolen bases. There's nothing left. There are players all the way throughout that will have stolen bases that you don't have to overpay. You don't need to pay a market premium. So my feeling about stolen bases are they are devalued. If the market is still pushing them up, that's a chance for you to gain uh, value. Tristan, any thoughts on the stolen bases? Now I know why you want Freddie Freeman over Corbin Carroll. Mm -hmm. And I get it. I, I do. I'm with you that they've been devalued. This is kind of the the home run argument I was making a few years back when that shifted dramatically. That was probably 2011 to 16, I think it was. And Mark Trumbo was the example I had, that there was a huge loss in the value of the home runs. And that's all he delivered to you. I'm with you that don't reach is the takeaway. I think that's the key here is that you don't have to force stolen bases anymore. I still want to get my power and speed guys in the early rounds, and I will pay the premium for them, but I will not push just to get a steals guy. I'm not the one who's going to be drafting Estuary. I mean, you, show, you showed that last year. You didn't push for Acuna, so. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> well, the problem is when you, when you reach for the stolen bases, you lose in power. And I know I reached for stolen bases a lot, and my team lacked power the whole year, and it's still easier to get stolen bases on the waiver wire than it is power. It's just always been like that. And when you don't have the power, you're losing runs, you're losing RBIs. I mean, stolen base guys, they get on base any way they can. It's, it, it's, they're, not, they're not the power guys. So the power guys really cover th almost three categories, while stolen bases is still a one-trick pony sometimes to some players like Esther Ruiz. That's he's a one-trick pony. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about closers. I know uh, here at Baseball HQ, there actually is another closer session at the same time, so we'll give you a little bit of a flavor of closers here. Uh, but every year I ask the question, you know, what is the optimal strategy for picking closers? And the question is, do you go for the absolute top? Do you get a, quote, safe? I mean, this is another... What is a safe closer, right? Uh, do you get a safe one? Do you go safe but second tier? Do you just pick shots? Do you do one in each? Um, now, obviously, those who drafted Ed, who, who here drafted Edwin Diaz last year? Yeah, I, I did a lot. I mean, you know, to me, that's just unfortunate. I think that was a, a good idea, but. Uh, who, who drafted early enough to take Edwin Diaz? That, that's another Yeah, that, right, right. Yes, obviously, the. Because I bet a lot of us would have done that if it had been. Yes, that's true. That's true. Obviously, post Edwin Diaz, nobody's drafting Edwin Diaz. Uh, the question is, what is the what 
was the optimal strategy this past year? And do you think that would continue? And what is the optimal strategy going forward? Like, has that changed at all based on what happened? The baseball environment we know is changing. More people are, more teams are splitting saves. Uh, you know, there's less lockdown guys. Uh, there's more matchup play. We know all that's happening. Is that going to change going into next year and whatnot? Uh, Ruben, you want to start then? Yeah, I'm going with one top-tier closer, then a bunch of darts. 40 pitchers, 40 relievers had eight or more saves last year. That means they are available in the waiver wire. We, I mean, in one of the sessions last night, someone said that saves are still going for, you know, people are spending so much money on Fab for saves. So they're still out there. So if you get that one lockdown guy on a good team, you, you're set for a base, whatever a base is of saves. And then these darts, they'll hit. The Trevor May, they'll hit. These type of play, these type of, those type of pitchers, they'll eventually hit. I mean, there are enough guys, there are 40 guys, there are 15 teams in your league. Each team should have at least two possible closes on your team, right? I, I tried to run a saves analysis coming into this, and there was nothing that was definitive enough to say steer swiftly in the other direction. The saves are still out there enough for big names that you can pay up for them. I prefer to take the sit back and let value fall into your lap. Ariel, you remember yesterday we're sitting in XFL. Not exactly a standard format being a keeper league, but there was a lot a lot of saves out there on the market. And the guy that stood out to me, I had a couple of discussions today, was Alexis Diaz. Was it exactly the right price point? And that's where I would have been if I needed the saves. Why didn't I? Because I already had two closers I liked the price for. So just find your price on a closer, take him. And the other is, I don't like spending my fab on closers during the season at all. I'd rather trade for them because I find that the trade market, people devalue saves on the trade market. At least in my leagues, they do. That's very league dependent, of course. Yes, in terms of but but I see it happen more often than not. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I'm not going to pretend to know the right answer to it. I've done both approaches. I mean, this year in in labor labor NL, I drafted Edwin Diaz, and my team was terrible. In Tout Wars NL, I drafted Kyle Finnegan. He was he was my closer, and I did great. But I was able to trade for a couple midseason. I got Pierce Johnson to give me like 15 saves at, at one point. Um, I kind of try to follow your school of thought, Ariel, where like you try to get one guy knowing that you're going to have to overpay a little bit, but you try to be the guy that overpays the least. You find the guy, right. the one That's closer, it. whoever it That's is, it. that you feel comfortable with and that you're not overpaying by $5 for. And uh, in, in labor this year, I thought I got a good deal on Edwin Diaz. After the draft, I overpaid for him less than, you know, Josh Hader and Devin Williams and whoever else. And then uh, in Tat Wars, that guy didn't exist. And I, I just landed on Finnegan late, and I got kind of lucky with it. But I don't know the answer. Yeah, yeah. Incidentally, don't be the last one to buy your closer because you always get marked up. Oh, yeah. That was Finnegan this year. I was like, all right, I'm not getting anybody. And then he just stopped because mm -hmm. normally you're right. Um, but Yeah. I mean, this is definitely, I think, what you're saying is the uh, easier explained in an auction format in that, you know, if you do your numbers, your values for the players, you know, this uh, Diaz worth 25 and uh, uh, Williams is worth 20, whatever, however you're doing your numbers, and you look at what the market pays during the auction, they're paying some dollar over. They're paying four over, seven over, whatever it is. You take any one of the top 10 and take the lowest the lowest markup, the lowest market premium, that's probably the way to go. Unless you're, unless you're buying Edwin Diaz, who has a very different strikeout potential, I think that they're more interchangeable than you think. Just take the best value. Um, let's do a trivia question for everybody here. Um, top nine closers in terms of value, not in terms of total saves, in terms of values. I should say top, top nine relievers. Um, obviously, if, you, if you're having saves, you're going to get more value. Who do you think the top nine 
relievers of this year in terms of value were? Batista, number one. King, no. Tanner Scott was number three. Alexis Diaz, number four. Iglesias, no. Duval, Camila Duval, yes, number six. Classe just missed it at number 10. Romano, lower down. Evan Phillips, number nine. Good guesses. Bednar, yes, number five. We left they out. I haven't gone the number two. I am amazed. Yeah. I should not have kept him, I guess. Think NL Central. Williams. Devin Williams. There you go. Josh Hader was up there. And Craig, Craig Kimbrell also. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna read you the ADPs, uh, the ADP dollars at least. I convert them to auction as I usually do. Batista at 16. Remember, he wasn't one of those top 20. Oh my god, you gotta get him. Williams at 19, a little bit on the higher side. Tanner Scott, zero. You could have gotten him pretty much for free. Alexis Diaz, 12. Bednar. 12, uh, sorry, 13, Camila Duval, 15, Hayter, 22, he was expensive, Kimbrell, 2, Evan Phillips, 5. So you, other than Josh Hayter, you didn't really have to go above like 16, 17, and most of the values were lower. So getting that elite closer does not produce the top value with any certainty. It's almost as if you can take on extra risk at the closer position and be okay. As much as you guys are, like, all about consistency. Like, well, I remember talking to you about Bednar at the start of the year because yep. Bednar's skills are elite. We knew Bednar was going to be great. The risk was, is he going to get traded at midseason, and then he's not going to get saves anymore. Right. So, again, how good are we really at assessing risk? But I, but, but you see the numbers there. I mentioned well, Scott was at zero, but almost everybody was in the teens, right? The sweet spot of value was not low, very low. It was not very high. It was like that second tier of semi-reliable closers. That, that's what I'm at least uh, claiming here. And a, and a lot of them were on good teams. Kimbrell, no one thought Kimbrell would, would take off. I mean, I did. I, I, I had Kimbrell in every single league this year because why would the Phillies sign him? He's not going to be a setup man. He never was good as a setup man. He's going to be the closer, even though they had a whole bunch of other guys. If you, know, if you think the team's going to be good, Baltimore, they were a team on the rise. Why would you not pick Batista? And you know what? Um, Yannir Cano was just as good. So if you had Batista, you should have picked up Cano as a middle reliever midseason just in case something happens because you never know. And he helped your ratios also. And then you had a closer. You had the backup closer. You have to, you have to you know, pony up for him. That's all. Yep. Yannir Cano was a middle reliever, all right? For most of the season, it was a middle reliever. My question to you guys here is, should we be drafting middle relievers at all? Or should we just wait wait for the first couple of weeks, see who has those filthy strikeout rates, then pick them up and play them as, as needed. What's the strategy for using middle relievers? Because I, I use them. I, 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 you know, I don't like playing that sixth, seventh starter. I don't want to have my ratios blown up. So I'll put in middle relievers pretty early on in the season. The question is, do you do that, and when is the right time to acquire them? Do you have to spend draft capital, or can it be very cheap waiver early on? I, I tend to think it's very cheap waiver early on, and that's – kind of skewed by Cano having been that last year, I would suspect he didn't even get picked in labor. If he was, he might have been a reserve pick. And usually people don't take middle relievers in the reserves. Uh, but yeah, you see that commonly for middle relievers, mainly because the pitchers that you want to target are so talented, they're likely to be their team's closers and they're drafted that way. The guys like Cano who come out of nowhere are ones who have solid springs, you see some sort of velocity bump, maybe a pitch selection change. And I would strike around April 10th to 15th. That's about where Cano broke through. You'd be getting him in the first two waiver runs. I think it definitely depends on the league format. Um, 
you know, the shallower the league, maybe the less you need relievers. I think the deeper the league, the more valuable they can be. Um, I'm definitely with you, though, on waiting. I don't need to pay. I mean, back in the day, when I first started, well, back in the day, maybe 15 years ago playing, you know, fantasy, you could get one of the elite non-closers for, like, a couple bucks, even in an NL or AL-only league at auction. Uh, those guys now are going to go for six, seven, eight dollars because people know their ratios are important. Even though they're not going to get saves, you still have to pay for them. So I'm not paying for those guys anymore. I'll wait. I'll take a guy for a dollar or in the reserves or early in the season on waivers because, I mean, there's always there's always blind spots even in even in expert leagues. Like there are always good relievers that just fall through the cracks. And in our league, GDD, we're in a league together. I drafted Brewster Gratterall and Giovanni Gallegos. Why? Because beginning of the season, if a pitcher blows up, your ERA could be shot for months. I didn't like the starting pitchers out there. I didn't trust any of them. So if you throw those middle relievers early, chances of them blowing up are a lot less usually. And if they give up runs, where they go two, three less runs, there's less innings. And, it's, and it stabilizes your ERA and whip. So you can pick up those two-star pitchers later in the year because you have that ERA and whip stabilized to a certain extent. The one counter-argument I would say to that is that early in the year, you're getting a lot of times the best pitching you best pitching conditions you're going to get the cooler weather and that kind of thing so from that respect streaming pitchers at that point is a lot more favorable than streaming them in 90 degrees in july yeah but you also don't know who you're who you're going to get you know um some pitchers figure it out mid-season implode hit the wall uh i'm, I'm very much of the fan of just fortify some era early I, I mean not for too long we're talking at least for you know the first couple of weeks uh, until you, you get uh, going and until you can trust some people a little bit more. Um, all right, so we're going to do questions in a few minutes, so get them ready, guys. But as we always do, like to do on this show, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the next year's first round. Um, so questions go as follows. Who is somebody that will be drafted in 2024 in the first round? That is even undervalued. I know well, I'm not. I'm not going to mention Freeman. We beat. We've already talked about him. But uh, um, talk to the panel. Who who is somebody who's going to be a first rounder and is even undervalued at that position? Do uh, we have some NFBC or anything ADP where five, we can say who the five first drafts. rounders are right now? We got five drafts. I'll read them very quickly. It's uh, Acuna, uh, Julio Rodriguez, Witt, Carroll, Betts, Tatis, Tucker, Freeman at eight, uh, Strider. Uh, Turner, Garrett Cole, Aaron Judge, Bryce Harper, Jordan Alvarez, and uh, Jose Ramirez just makes it. I'm going with Jose Ramirez. Look at it done the last three years. An average of 27 home runs, 92 RBIs, 82 runs, 19 stolen bases, and a 276 average. That's super consistent. That's almost consistently the same level as Freddie Freeman. Those two players are very similar. They fill up your corner. And, you know, they give you the base of stats. If you're not going stolen bases, I mean, he gives you nice and stolen bases. So if you're not going for that speedster in the first round, he's the guy to go for. I would actually second that one at 14th. And granted, it's five drafts. I do think there's a good number, a good amount of profit potential, even at 14th for Jose Ramirez. Fills categories, consistent across all different formats. Yeah, I don't have much of an issue with most of the first round this year. I think... Uh, the guy that I definitely wouldn't be taking in the first round out of that group is Garrett Cole. I don't see any reason to take Garrett Cole in the first round. Like Strider, you can make the case for because he's so much, like he's so good. You're not going to convince me that Garrett Cole is really any different than the next five pitchers that are going to come off the board. I, I really thought I was going to be alone on that. I'm not touching Garrett Cole in the first round. Wow, no, it's stupid. Yeah, 
Who and here I agrees? Cole should not be a first rounder. Raise your hand. A couple of hands. A well, couple I'm, of hands. I'm going to give a hot take. Spencer Strider should not be in the first round. He is being overvalued. I'll give you a couple of reasons why. First of all, his innings jumped. In 2022, 130 innings. He jumped to 180 innings. That's even more so if you add the playoff innings. Um, in the first half of last year, 104 innings, a 3.44 ERA. Second half, 83 innings, 4.39 ERA. He's going right now ahead of Cole. Is he more consistent? He's 25 and never been injured. A pitcher, never been injured, throwing that many innings, a big jump like that. Do you want to take that risk? I'd rather have Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole's been doing that more. I'd rather have Garrett Cole before, um, before Spencer Strider. But Spencer Strider, I'm nervous about for next year just because that innings jump. That ERA the, at the and end the of the ERA. year? You'd rather yeah. have Cole than Strider. Yes. And but I'm, I'm with you on the on, – I wouldn't take a pitcher in the first round this year. But I'd rather mm. have Cole instead of Strider. And I'm saying that as a Met fan too. <laughs> um, I would say uh, Fernando Tatis is somebody I'm not high on in the first round. Let's see. Steroids, motorcycle accident, uh, shoulder issues. Anybody still worried about his shoulder? No. Anybody? No? A little bit. I'm, yeah. I'm a little bit. Tiny bit. Not really. I don't know. Surprisingly. I have no idea what's going to happen with him. He's, but He's had an injury history dating back to the minors. I'm not 100% on him. What's his batting average last year? Was it, it was 257? Um, WRC plus only 113. I think Dan Vogelbach had a better one or something like that. Uh, walk rate was down like 3% year over year. I'm not, I mean, great player. I'd take him in the second round. I'm not going to push people over him in the first round. And my guy, by the way, for who I would push even more, yes, we know Freeman, but uh, Trey Turner. I mean, how many years in a row is Trey Turner like, are you going to take him first? Are you going to take him second? What did Trey Turner do wrong this year that all of a sudden we say he's not consistent? I mean, Trey Turner, uh, he had a $27 season. That's the sixth year in a row. Um, I mean, that's a guarantee. You know, um, Ron Chandler asked earlier in the presentation today, uh, you know, do you think Acuna or the field has a chance for number one? Um, and we were also surprised why people say that. My question to you is, if, if I would say, okay, I, I can either give you for next year Ronald Acuna, okay? Obviously, anything can happen. He can be amazing. He can have a $70 season or whatever. Or I'll give you just a $29 player, whatever it is. Who would you take? Would you take – show your hands. Would you take Acuna or the guaranteed $29? Acuna, raise your hand. And $29, raise your hand. Sure. I would for sure take it. You take the guaranteed twenty-nine dollar return over Acuna. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I'd take Acuna. Really? Okay. Well, is there anybody else though? Number two, Julio. Is there anybody else that would do for you, Tristan? That you would pass up a twenty-nine? Take the twenty-nine. Yeah. For, for anybody else. Nobody else. For anybody else, I'd take the twenty-nine dollar right, okay. player for Freddie anybody. Freeman. I think it's also format Freddie Freeman. Too. If you're in like an Freddie NFC more than where you're trying to yeah, win a main event or something, you have to take Acuna. But in just like a normal you know, one-and-done league. Also, it's it's standard Roto we're talking about. Sure. In just about every other format, Acuna is not the player that he is in Roto. Let's remember that. <laughs> sure. Acuna maybe is a little special. I mean, he just had the best Roto yeah. season ever. Uh, but my point, though, is that like banking stats are so important. So Trey Turner, he's, he's known to do it. And by the way, he also steals. Like a lot of people, oh, we're making your steal. He also steals, guys. Mm -hmm. So I think he is undervalued at pick. He's ADP right now is pick 11. I, I, would, I would take him earlier than that. How about somebody who's not going to be in the first round? It probably should be in the first round. Let's start on this side. 
start with Tristan. I want to look at the list. <laughs> <laughs> I struggled with this one. There's probably the points ranker in me that says I kind of like the value on Juan Soto this year. But the one who struck me, and I, I can't make the first round case. I can't make top 15. Luis Robert. I actually really like Luis Robert. I think there is still growth potential in him. I know the home runs will be difficult to repeat, but he'll give you the stolen bases. I think a 30-20 season is very much in the cards. And that's not far off from being a top 15 value. He's getting picked 25th. Seems a little low to me. I'm actually about that. I think Luis Robert's a good pick. The guy on this list that blows my mind is Ellie De La Cruz. Oh, yeah. He's just missing the first round. I'm not – I mean, come on. There's no way. He's like a fourth rounder, fifth There's round, maybe – 19th on this list. There's no, no way. Every year, a guy like that gets pumped up, and every year it's like, all right, you just threw your draft away. By the way, I'll give you another one. Royce Lewis. Where do you stand on Royce Lewis, who is 23, two ahead of Luis Robert? Recency bias. Want to talk, about, wanna talk bias. about risks? I love Royce Lewis, but he's got to prove he can stay healthy. Again, health is a skill. He, right how, there, 23. How is he being taken there? Uh, recency bias. Five, five drafts. That's what it is. That's it. It's five drafts. Small That's sample it. size, too. All right. Well, I'm going to go with Pete Alonzo. First Pete, round. Pete Alonzo, last three-year average, 31 homers, 87 RBIs, 262 average. He's played in basically 95% of the games since he's been up. 160, 155, 152, 57 out of 60, and 161. He plays every day. You know what you're going to get out of him. And he's, he's a guy that he's... Super consistent, and he's in a contract year, and he just got Scott Boris as an agent. He may have a season a la Aaron Judge next year. Who knows? You're betting on a Met? Oh, boy. You, you, buy, the con- you buy the contract year. <laughs> I buy, I buy, 100% I buy the contract year. Look in the, in the recency, recency bias on me for, um, for contract years. Everyone seems to perform so well. Scott right Boris says, buys into the contract. Yeah, I'm thing, sure right? he does. Not, not with you on that one. but okay. <laughs> I get it. It's, it's, we could cherry pick a couple of guys like that, and maybe yeah. he's the one like Judge. Who does, but it's possible. Uh, I'll go with Matt Olson. Uh, I know Matt Olson just had an amazing season, but let's look at what he's going to do next year. Is that RBI total going to hold? Let's see. Is Atlanta going to be a good team? Yeah, I think so. Is that runs going to hold? I think so. Does he still have that power? I think so. I think there's enough value to bank uh, with upside that he could potentially be there. I don't think he's an early first rounder, but I think he might be a little bit undervalued even for where he's taken, at least according to this list. We're so far off from draft season, of course. How is Royce Lewis being taken there? <laughs> <laughs> he's being t- where is Matt Olson? He's, he's being taken six spots after Matt Olson. That's uh-huh. the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my entire career in fantasy baseball. <laughs> it, it, like, it doesn't make any sense. The guy was in the majors for like two days. Like, he, he's an amazing talent, but I gotta wait and see with him. I love Ellie De La Cruz as much as the next guy. But hey, thoughts? Quick thoughts on Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I mean, he was going first rounder last year. He's going. He's you know had not a, a little bit of a down year. Uh, two, now he's a little bit removed from his great years. Any thoughts on Guerrero? Uh, he's being drafted now in like the third round. I'll take the discount. There's nothing any different about him than there was this time last year. Yeah, he's being drafted. Uh, like being drafted ahead of Alonzo, Ruvain. <laughs> I would take Alonzo. No, sorry, oh, sorry, Alonzo's being drafted ahead Alonzo's of him. I, I, for <laughs> yeah. for value wise, I would take um, Vlad for value wise because yeah. of where Alonzo's going. But if you if Alon- if Vlad bumps up ahead of Alonzo, I'm taking Alonzo. Right. Ch- cherry picking it again. Vladimir Guerrero is being picked five spots ahead of C.J. Abrams. So, uh, Guerrero oh. Guerrero's manning in one thing. I, I probably wrote this somewhere. 
he's going to have another amazing year like the one a couple years back, and damned if we know when it's going to happen. And that's what drives me crazy about him. So much talent. It's going to happen. Are, are we going to just guess the, this year he's at a good price? I hope it happens. C.J. Abrams, I think, is a terrible pick for where he is because he, all of his value is concentrated in one statistic. When I ran the ATC intra-SD where it shows you know, what – kind of dimensionalness, he's a one-dimensional player. I just don't want to rely, like if, not that he's bad, but if he gets injured, it's such a disproportionate value of my team's aggregate stolen base total that I don't want to have to rely on him for that. Like I'd rather piece together my steals elsewhere and get other value than rely on him for that value in that one statistic. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. You know. Probably there because he finished last year strong, so everybody's going with the, the second half numbers. Which sure, sure. All right, we're going to have question and answer now, so make your way to the front, guys. If you have a question, we got a lovely microphone over there uh, who has a question on the Beat the Shift podcast live from Arizona. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> All right, don't be shy. Who's got the first question for us? All right, come on oh, up to the got, mic. The ball's gotten rolling. Microphone is there. Uh, I'm going to ask a question about uh, fab bidding and rookie pitchers. So I'm a, a long-time uh, believer in the Corey Schwartz uh, view of pitching, with you, whether you're familiar with that. Corey Schwartz put out his list every year uh, of his top uh, pitchers to draft. They had to have at least two years' experience. Well, he only put out pitchers that were at least around for three years. And I always believed that. So now I see the rookie pitchers come up. Uh, 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 Matt Miller, you know, he, he strikes out a bunch of guys. He gets a good start in. And the fab bidding goes $200, $250. Tanner Bybee, he didn't start as well, but then he turned it around. Okay, so my, my question is this. Maybe I got it all wrong. Maybe that's what you're supposed to do, is to make crazy bids on young <laughs> pitchers with the possibility one out of five times you're going to hit it. So I'd be interested to know what you, what you think about that. I'd say it depends a lot on format. If you're in a mixed league, especially like a shallower mixed league, fab's not that valuable because, like, what are you really going to get? So take a shot on an upside guy or whatever. If you're in a deeper NL, AL only league, Fab is more valuable because if a guy gets hurt, I mean, you can, like, you, you want to replace him with something substantial. Um, I don't know. I, I think it depends. But I'm not one to go crazy on rookies, but I can kind of see the argument from a Fab standpoint just because, like, what else are you going to do with it? Yeah. Still at the extremes, though, Mason Miller. Is Mason Miller was the one? Yeah. Yeah. Probably was one who got to fab also in labor or possibly tout labor because it was earlier, I would suspect. How many guys are you going to get who have that kind of upside or are available in fab in that deep a format? So oh, I think I, at the extremes, mm -hmm. you just have to deal with it. Yeah. But how many it, of those guys are going to get their, earn their money back that you're paying in fab? That's the problem. If you spend $300 in fab, you're not going to get that even half of that value back. I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not logical to do that. And on a hitter, it's different because you may get the next Juan Soto to win your league. That is possible. But when was the last time someone picked up a rookie pitcher midseason and they won the league for them? In, in fairness, the, and I haven't updated these stats for this past season yet. That's one of the off-season tasks. The numbers had shown that rookie pitchers did have some of their best performances in the first five to eight starts they have in the majors. And then there's a lull as they adjust, and then I'm back in at 50. 
but that's five to eight starts. I'm not spending a large chunk of that's, my fab for that's that. That's the whole thing. Yeah. I have a hard time spending a lot on fab in general on any one player because I'm a return on investment type guy. And there's uh, two ways to uh, to there's two ways to to do well in return on investment. You need a good return or you need a low investment. When you put a large investment. <laughs> You're going to need a very large return on a guy. Um, you might be better off bidding the 20 bucks out of 1,000, 20 bucks on this guy, 5 bucks on this guy. You, I, I find my you know, allocating $250 on one guy rather than spending it all else on so many other players, I just can't get myself to do that. And, yes, there are the extremes. We understand that. But for everybody else, I just can't be the highest guy. And, of course, if I'm in the middle of the season and I really need a miracle, I'm in eighth place, of course, all bets are off, you know. I'm just thinking which – because if you're referring Tout or Labor, or you're in the mix one. Uh, in Tout, I'm in, I'm in the head-to-head points. In the head-to-head points. Okay, so, so it's standard mix. Like, we, we go through that with the NL. There's just nothing there to bid on. If you, know, if you, if you went $40 out of your 1000 you're never going to get anything. Yeah. And, and we've done that. We've sat back at the trade deadline waiting for the traded player, and then we end up having $500 and are spending 370 on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. I'm more in favor of being aggressive early, mm-hmm. trying to get someone. Because the earlier you buy a player, the more potential he has to help your team. Uh, a couple of years ago when Willie Adamas got traded from the Rays to the Brewers um, in national, national only leagues, like he was – you know, he wasn't like a great, great player, but he was, you know, like a guy who at auction would go for like 12 or 15 bucks and you were getting him in May instead of at the trade deadline. I think I spent like 60 of my $100 on him and I had no regrets. I think I might have won that year or second that year. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it's all depending on context. But I, I think there are definitely cases where being aggressive early is smart. Yeah, well, if you get somebody early, you get somebody for an entirety of a season. If you get somebody mid-season, you're getting him for half the season. So obviously you have that as well. All right, next question here. And if you have a question, please come up uh, and get ready with the next one after. I do. True confession. I have an irrational love for Michael Harris II. Uh, I, I, I think he improves even more. He's past the injury. He's going to move up from the ninth position. He, he hit in the sixth or the second late in the season last year. I, I just think – I think the uh, future is bright for him. So, but again, irrational love for him. Interested in your guys' opinion? It's all going to depend on where the market is valuing him. I mean, I try not to get too attached to any one player. You know, I like him. I think he's the kind of guy that the market might be a little low on. Kind of one of these post-hype guys that is actually pretty good. That never turned into that superstar that everyone wanted him to be. And so people are a little reluctant. If he's that guy, then yeah, maybe I'm in on Michael Harris. If uh, it's going to depend what the cost is, though, for ever for everybody. Mm-hmm. I just don't like. I'd like to see more walks from him. That's the only negative I really have on Harris. Like him, good player, high value for those five drafts we mentioned. Thirty-three overall. And Thirty-three overall. Yeah, and the low is forty-two. So yeah, I'm probably not in on him at that point. And the yeah. fact that the Braves gave him a contract at such such a young age. They've been very smart with their contracts. They have a very good team for a long time. He's in a good lineup. I mean. He's going to get the runs. If they move him up from the ninth spot, he, his value can go up. I mean, he started off the year, he very started off very slowly. And then he just built up, built up, and then he moved him up in the lineup. And, you know, it, the, the fact that the Braves – just the Braves, it's an organizational thing. If, if a Braves guy gets signed like that, I look I, – I, I stand at attention. When a Rays sign a pitcher in the offseason of a guy who's middling and you never know what's going to happen – I stand at attention. You know, Zach just Eflin. like Zach Eflin. <laughs> Zach Eflin came out of nowhere when he was the a magic Philly. touch. I yeah, love yeah, Zach exactly. Eflin. <laughs> so certain organizations are smart in certain areas, 
and you have to, you know, that goes into the whole, you know, getting ready for the getting the offseason done and figure out who you want to draft. So, uh, going at, speaking of the Zach Eflins of the world, going into the last season, there was a lot of hype about a, no, a number of young pitchers. I mean, Cincinnati had Lodolo, Milwaukee had Ashcroft, uh, Arizona had like Jamison. All these guys struck out. I mean, they all got injured or they never really lived up to performance. Do you see any of these guys? I think Chicago had Wisnowski. I don't know. Hayden Wisnowski. Yeah. 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 I mean, there, were, there was a <laughs> lot of, lot of uh, you know, juice. Sarah Sanchez goes, what? Yeah, that's being spent <laughs> on them, yes. So the question is, uh, do you see any of these guys bouncing back? And uh, who do you think is going to be the next uh, Wisnowski uh, this year? Yeah. All of them. <laughs> 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 well, my thing is Grayson Rodriguez. I had him. I drafted him in GDD, and I dropped him because when they sent him to the minors, I said he looked like a different pitcher. But then he figured it out in the minors. So sometimes it takes going to the minors and figuring it out again. And sometimes you never know what's going to happen. They may figure it out in the offseason. They may tweak a pitch or tweak an angle, and you're not going to know that until you know spring training comes and they'll say, "Oh, I learned a new pitch." And if it's a younger player, it's more you know you, you, you tend to pay more attention than an, on an older pitcher because. It's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. So so my rule is, well, first of all, it depends on the player, obviously, it's player-specific. But um, if the player is not going to cost you a lot in the draft, then you can bet more on it, right? You can you can take it because the being wrong doesn't cost you. If the player is higher and you're p passing up on some more, uh, you know, certain value, uh, it's going to hurt you more. So, again, to me, it's a matter of, you know, where in the draft is he taken uh, and if I'm comfortable with taking a loss. Because the percentage, I mean, I'm with Derek in general, the percentage chance that it works out is lower. Of course, the upside is going to be high, so there's a spot in the draft that I'm willing to take that chance, and you just have to pick which spot it is and see where which uh, spot above the line that player is. I'll tell you which spot above the line I'm not doing is Royce Lewis in the second round. <laughs> <laughs> so to be clear, no Royce Lewis in the second round. <laughs> yeah, my question's about uh, pitchers returning from injury uh so we had shane boz walker bueller took the year off and now they're coming back how do you approach valuing them got an injury guy here <laughs> it depends on the first of all it depends on the injury 100 percent. i mean there's some guys i'm not concerned about that they've been out long enough they can recover but a guy like a guy who i'm very nervous about this coming into next year is joe musgrove i mean he was shut down with a shoulder injury and he couldn't get back and and you never know what's going to happen with these guys. And today, they announced that Clayton Kershaw had surgery. He had surgery mm -hmm. on his shoulder. Yep. Um, he said he's going to be back sometime this summer. So when you're coming back from Tommy John, it's usually 12 to 13 months barring any setbacks. If it's a shoulder injury, it's usually a year. Usually. I mean, they've got to build up all the shoulder muscles again, so it, it takes some time. The, to value them, I'm, this past year, I stayed away from any question in any injured pitcher because – they're going to get injured during the season. Why should I have them when they start the season? Mm -hmm. You know, another question that comes up about, you know, taking the pitchers uh, with injury risk, do, do you think that it's wise to just devalue pitchers? So I'll take Musgrove at a price that's lower, or just stay away from him. Just put him on a don't draft list whatsoever. I think there has to be a threshold for everybody that you would be willing to take them. Yeah. Determining that threshold is difficult, and it's, I think, one of probably the biggest weak spots of projections. Like projections, not just the bat, but any projection. 
every year is going to be high on Jacob deGrom. You know, last year it's high on deGrom. It's high on Sale. It's high on anybody like that who's, like, kind of coming back from injury. You don't know what they're going to get. Um, I feel like projections – I mean, we're not – we're not really able to quantify the impact of, okay, what's the, the probability of the injury recurring? What's the probability of this guy not being the same guy? I don't think we're at the point where we're really nailing that yet. Just look at Luis Severino coming back from Severino, injury. Severino. He no, came back from injury, and then we guys. pitched him, and then he was god-awful. He yeah. was just mm-hmm. so bad. Sometimes it doesn't work out. That's just one example of it. Shoulders are a no for me. Shoulder, yeah. I'm glad you brought up Musgrove with that. I, I'm generally a, a no on shoulders. Tommy John surgeries I'm okay with, but I've learned my lesson time and time again over the years that assume 15 to 16 months before they're going to help you. It's it's the wisest thing you can do is to assume it's going to be at least that before they contribute. What about a second Tommy John? Jacob deGrom. He'll be back probably June, July maybe. And that, that is the age thing tied yeah. into it too. Yeah. So I know Verlander came back okay from that, but even still, was he quite the same Verlander in terms not, of the volume? Not right, away, not right away. Not right away. That's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. How you doing? Uh, it's a pleasure to be here on the Beach Chip Podcast. Thanks for taking my question. I was wondering, a guy like Tyler Wells was serviceable for a good stretch of the season. How do you know when to pull the plug? Do you think you guys have a good handle on, are you willing to say that's a no-go guy no matter what? Or this guy's performer right now, he's crushing his whip ratio, and it was good enough for – Two months, roughly? I'm curious on guys like that, when you're willing to maybe break your own rules, or are you just like, you know what, this guy's a flaw, a fraud. He's a fluke. It's not real. I'm curious about that. And on the Thank other you. side, who who here had Marcelo Zuna and cut him after a month or two? Yeah, saw some hands. It goes both ways, right? It does. I had Tyler Wells in my AL, and I waited on him in the minors, which was foolish. But what are you going to do? I, I probably like him better than the average person, I think. He has a role. I don't think he's quite the strikeout guy he showed last year. I mean, I look at here and I see 8.9 Ks per nine. I actually would not have guessed that if you asked me how many he had this season. But in, in his case, that was league contextual where I had to keep him around. There wasn't anybody else out there worth picking up to let him go. But I think you got to be prepared to move on from somebody like that who's not one of those you know, blue chip prospects, top shelf draft pieces. I think it, it's always going to depend on the player, but I'm someone who's more willing to wait for the regression to happen. Um, sometimes it never does. And we have more tools now to help us figure out, okay, is something really wrong? You know, different stuff, metrics and whatnot, I think are are valuable for that sort of thing. So it, it's, all, it's all relative. But uh, in general, I think people are too – too willing to, to cut bait on a guy because of small sample bad performance. Uh, question related to Wells, out of curiosity, what's his role next year? What is he? I'd like to think he's a starter. I would like to too, but they dabbled a little in relief. Mm-hmm. They don't have a closer. Tech- very, very I mean, they have Cano, I know, but. Very few teams only go through five starters during the course of the season. Mm-hmm. He's going to be needed. Pitching depth yeah. is like, mm-hmm. it, not only on, on fantasy rosters, but on baseball rosters. They, that's, that's something that's Invaluable, and mm-hmm. having a guy like Tyler Wells who they can call up even to spot start, and then you can pick him up on your waiver wire for one week. They'll say, "Oh, he's coming up one week." You can, you know, jump on him. He, he and Michael King are the two who fall in this area, and I really hope they are both starters. Yes. Yeah, King looked pretty good at the end. Okay, uh, time for the injury report, Ruvain. Uh, well, we got a whole off season of injuries, so. Well, I'll, I'll only get to some. 
Um, we'll start with Shohei Otani. We mentioned him. Um, his agent said he had a surgery for his elbow. Not, he did not clarify except saying he, quote, reinforced the healthy ligament in place while adding viable tissue for the longevity, for longevity of the elbow. Great. So what was that? I don't know. Um, so, so basically, you're saying that he's not going to pitch next year. He's going to be able to hit. And, and, the, and the agent, again, this is the agent speaking, he should be hitting without restrictions by opening day. Does that mean he's going to need a rehab assignment by opening day? Does it mean he's going to start opening day? That's an excellent question. Uh, Brandon Woodruff, he had shoulder surgery. He had the surgery to repair an anterior capsule for his right shoulder. It was done actually about three weeks ago. Um, I wouldn't buy him next year. Uh, he, he'll, he'll give you very little next year, if anything. Uh, Manny Machado, a lot of people don't know this, he underwent surgery to repair the extensor tendon in his right elbow. His estimated, estimated time of recovery, four to six months, which means he'll be sidelining for most of spring training. He may not be ready for opening day, so be ready for when you want to take care, you know, when you want to draft him. Uh, Drew Rasmussen, Shane McClanahan, I don't know how much you can get out of them next year. Is, you can say that for Jeffrey Springs also. But he may come back middle of the year, all coming from Tommy John surgery. Reese Hoskins, he will be perfectly fine next year. Take the discount on him. He's a first baseman. He's not stealing. He's not like his, I mean, Schwarber had a torn ACL. He turned out fine, so I, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, Vinny Pasquantino, people forgot about him. He had surgery a long time ago. Um, he just posted a, uh, a picture of him fielding ground balls already, so he's coming up soon. Oh, God, Jacob deGrom. Okay. Um, <laughs> World Series champion. Um, Jacob deGrom said this week, he had Tommy John four months ago, he said this week that my arm feels pretty close to normal already. Where have we heard this before? Um, he's, he's supposed to rejoin the Rangers rotation next August. Is that going to happen? I don't know. Aaron Judge, remember, he still has a torn ligament in the toe. It didn't magically heal itself. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you know, he's going to have the surgery. He may, or I think he'll have the surgery. But the thing is, nowadays, teams don't have to tell us when they're having the surgery. We find out about these surgeries by spring training. He may have in the offseason. You don't know. So that's something yeah. to watch for. Uh, should I even bother talking about Alberto Monesi? <laughs> no, Very popular no, free no. agent. But what I want to say is, I, was here, I wasn't here last year, but I was here two years ago. These are a list of the players I mentioned two years ago, and tell me if, these, if this list sounds familiar. Jacob deGrom, Mike Trout, Clayton Kershaw, Mike Clevenger, Dustin May. This is two years ago, not last year, two years ago. Glasnow, Verlander, Hicks, Paxton, Strasburg. Thank God he's retired. Kyle Lewis, Brian Anderson, Reese Hoskins, Lance McCullers. There's a trend. If a player gets injured, especially a pitcher, and it's an elbow or shoulder, and they don't have surgery, Things don't heal themselves. They usually require surgery to repair. You can have a PRP injection. A PRP injection is when they take the blood, they spin it down, they take out the bad stuff, and reinsert the good stuff. It's supposed to help regenerate some tendon growth, but think of the elbow like a rubber band, the, the UCL as a rubber band. It keeps getting stretched and stretched and stretched. If you keep stretching it at 100 miles an hour, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 times a game, it's going to pop. If it doesn't pop, it tears a little bit, and it's going to tear. Unless you're an R.A. Dickey that doesn't have a UCL, didn't have a UCL. You know, these guys are people, even if they're injured this year, they'll say they're healthy next year. Just keep an eye on them. Are you worried at all about Manny Machado? Yes. He, he basically had a type of Tommy John surgery, even though it, it, this was, that's not the way it was worded, but he had a type of Tommy John surgery. Will he be ready for April? I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, this is the same procedure that if it was if Max Muncy wanted to do it last year, he would have done it last year. So technically, he, he um, Machado did play through it. Is it worthwhile to draft him 
as high as he's going right now, I don't know. But you'll see in spring training, I'll get a better idea of when he's coming back, and you'll have a better idea where to draft him. Brees Hoskins is the guy that I'm sitting here like, oh, I love that Ruvain said he's good to go. Like, Same that's exactly the kind of guy that I like to draft. Okay, he's getting older. He's boring. But he still has great skills. He plays a deep position. So people are going to be like, well, I can just take, you know, whoever the next Vinny Pasquantino is, whoever. I don't Whoever is um is he the Phillies' first baseman next year? I think so. Or and Bryce Harper's they gotta, where? They got to resign him, I think. Free agent. Well, okay. some right. someone will sign him. He'll sign with the Royals or the Pirates or who cares? He's gonna please not the Pirates. He's gonna no. play almost mm-hmm. every day. Please not the Pirates. He's gonna be really good and he's gonna be so undervalued in drafts. He went for a ton yesterday, rightfully so. On base percentage, lead. oh yes, he was in the twenties. Yeah, he did without question. Wow, really? There was aggressive bidding late in the auction. For Rizak, I'm going to be I'm going to be so interested to see how that settles next year because I kind of and expected yet, him to not be that guy. Two o two, right here. Two o two. Oh wow. Two o two. Jump on. I that. didn't realize it was that. Machado was seventy seven. Just out of curiosity, so I think they are downgrading him a little bit. A little bit. Does that have to do with team context that we don't know? The two o two. Why it's that low? Well, that's part of why I said the Pirates. I mean, you don't want yeah. him in that park for, with right-handed power. I, I bet that people are going to downgrade him because of the unknown of where he plays. Right. Don't worry about that. All right, well, we're just about at the end of the show. I wanted to thank the guests for coming on the show. Tristan, thank you so much for coming on. A big hand My for pleasure. Tristan Cockroft. And uh, why don't you tell us what's going on with you? Uh, besides that other sport I'm still writing about, I have uh, both sets of rankings up there for everybody on ESPN right nice. now, both Roto and Points League, so I cover both games for you. Top 300s for both. Check that out at ESPN. And uh, Derek Hardy, everyone. All right, what's going on with you? I mean, you can always find me on Twitter ranting about how young players are bad investments, at Derek Hardy. Um, you can find the Bad X later this offseason for free at Fangrass for your season long, uh, next year for DFS at Rotor Grinders for sports betting at EV Analytics. And, uh, yeah, any questions, I'm always happy to – my DMs are always open. Amazing. Check that out as well. And uh, Ruven Guy, everyone. You. you can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates all offseason. I also have a weekly article in season on Rotoball discussing all these injuries and more. And my name is Ariel Cohen. That's it? That's it? No, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm over at Fangraphs uh, at Rotobuller. Uh, ATC projections, well, got to wait till uh, January for them, uh, but they'll be up on plenty of sites. Uh, you can find me on Twitter or X at ATCNY and right here, of course, on the Beat the Shift podcast. Once again, thank you so much to all of our guests here. Thank you to the audience. You've been a great audience here at First Pitch Arizona. And from all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.